1: Well, thank you. It, it has been a wild ride. Ten years in one place. The longest, play, longest time we've been anywhere in our married life and in my ministry career has been here. So, um, and it has been a blessing. Yes, it's had its challenges, but overall it has been an amazing ride. And uh, as Jim was saying, when we, when we initially... Uh, honestly, Butler was never on the radar, but my brother-in-law, Sara Lee's brother... Who was a youth pastor at the time in uh, Kentucky? Yeah, I think that's where he was. He's in Nashville now. He, um, he said, There's this church, because we were in the process of feeling like our time was done in Ohio. Uh, but he said, There's this church, Church of God, in Western PA that I know is seeking a pastor. You should put your name in there. It's a good family community and a uh, good place to raise a family. You should consider. I'm like, but we want to go closer to central Kentucky where our family are. Our kids are at this age of growing up and all that. And just to appease him, we threw our uh, resume in here. And uh, But we didn't even meet the minimum requirements. Barely, if at all, met the minimum requirements that the church was looking for. And um, and I remember getting an email in response to that. And... and I thought, we don't want to go to Western PA. God, if this is truly you, I'm going to give you every reason. Uh, I'm going to pull out all the stops, and I need to make sure this is you. This is my fleece. So I responded to the seven questions they sent, and I responded in very long answers, very detailed answers, and it scared some of our team. Ruth McCarrier like, What is wrong with this guy? <laughs> you remember? I remember, yeah, because it gave you guys pause. And I remember that first. Uh, interview, which was over the phone, that came up, and I said, well, a couple of reasons. I think the one, the one that I said was, is you would want your pastors to be gut-level honest with you about everything, their history, their background, and all of that. Uh, otherwise, you know, you probably wouldn't want them and stuff to come out later, like, oh, I didn't know that about you. So uh, anyway, gave them gut-level honest, every detail of my life, picture and it gave them a little bit of pause, some of them, and, uh, but they continued to pursue. And I continued to not want to be here. And so I, I continued to say, all right, God, if this is you, you're going to do this. Well, lo and behold, this would happen. Okay, God, that was a coincidence. If this is you, you're going to, over a course of about nine months, he pulled out all the stops. And when we finally drove into the area, it was a very unassuming area, you know. We were coming from Dayton, Ohio, to here, and driving through, you know, we weren't wowed, like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, and nothing against Butler, but it wasn't like one of those, like, yes, you know, moments. And, but when we had met and we were leaving, we knew that this is where God was calling us, and, uh, but we were still neck and neck with another candidate. (laughs) And I remember it was, I got a call from the chairman of the search committee and they said, um, listen, it is down to two of you and we cannot decide. And you know, if we could, the person said, if we can merge the two of you into one, it would be great. And I'm like, well, I'm not the other person, the other person's not me, so you gotta make a decision. And when I got off the phone, I wasn't very happy so I'm like all right God if this is you if they don't call by Friday this was like on a Monday then I'll bow out and I'll make the decision for them and the very next day I got a call and they said listen we want to call you to come and uh, so here we are all right Um, and you're right not everybody likes transparency, not everybody likes the style of preaching or the style of leadership, and I have seen in 10 years so many people come and go, and many times it's been heartbreaking, and still, you know, pastors are supposed to have a tough, tough skin, but most of us don't, and, and to see people come and go, not just through natural, you know, people passing from this life into life everlasting, but to see them come and be upset by something you said or misunderstanding a decision you've made for the church. Um, this is difficult at times, and, and so that's the bittersweet aspect of this. I get to do what I feel called to do, which is to research, to, pray, uh, to preach, to pray, and to, to help people understand God's word so that they can find a way to embed that into their lives for life transformation. Um, but it's not always easy, so you guys make it easy, and I appreciate your love and support. Our family are better off for it after these 10 years, and as you saw on the screen there, I'm looking at some of those pictures, and I remember when my kids were that little. I, I, I was sitting there thinking as you're running those, if, if we still had that, we sent a video of our family, which was an intro video, and I don't know if it's still in the archives, we'll have to show that someday, because we had our youngest, Raylan, who wasn't talking at the time, but was babbling a lot. We had her sit in a chair, we were videoing her, and she was babbling, and we had subtitles underneath translating what she was saying at the end of the video. So, we'll have to show that to you sometime. All right, are you ready for the message? Okay, I've had two weeks to really work this out and ponder this. And so it's, you know, because I normally preach about 40 minutes, give or take. Um, I've been working this up. So it's going to be at least, what, 40, 40, and 40, you know, it's like a lot of minutes. So (laughs) 120 minutes. Uh, You learned last week what it meant to know Christ sentimentally. We thought we'd take the month of, of August and really hone in on what our vision is. Because sometimes you have this thing in organizations or in churches called vision drift. Have you ever heard of that? So vision drift is where you have a vision and a purpose for why you exist and what you're doing. You know where you're going. You have an end goal in sight. And so our vision is to develop completely committed followers of Christ. That's our end goal. We want to see that happen in everybody's life. And so the mission to get there are the steps and the process by which to accomplish that vision. And the vision, being what I just told you, to develop completely committed followers of Christ, is is. is done or accomplished through our no gro go process. It's helping people to know Christ intimately. And How do we do that? Well, you cannot know Christ intimately unless you surrender your life to Christ. That is the first step in knowing Christ intimately. And you cannot know Christ intimately apart from several other factors, not just accepting Christ into your life, but you have to pray, you have to study You have to worship God. Today, we're going to talk about the second part of that process, which is to grow in Christ continually. Do you ever stop growing in Christ as a believer in Christ? You definitely do not. I have had people that give up or quit growing. They stagnate or they're just tired and they're like, I'm done, you know, and they just stop. And they either stagnate or they decline in their faith. Growing in Christ continually starts at the point of knowing Christ intimately when you come to a saving grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ and welcome him into your life, surrendering to him everything that you are and everything that you've ever done, confessing your sins to him, repenting of those sins, and following strongly after him. And what does it mean to follow Christ? It means to obey his commands and his teachings. You cannot know him intimately apart from doing what he said for us to do. Growing in him continually, the second part, actually involves a thing we call doing life together. So I want to talk to you about this growing aspect of what it means to be a church that develops completely committed followers of Christ, helping them to understand not only are you to know Christ intimately, but you cannot know him continually more and more intimately apart from growing in him continually. I did some research this week on eagles. And as I was kind of putting some time and effort into this message, I was trying to figure out some good illustrations on growth. And uh, this illustration came out of a biblical illustration thing, and I always have to check and see, is this a pastor's illustration? Meaning it's a really good story, but it's not founded or rooted in truth. And so I had to really look that up. This one, I can actually verify as being the case. There are some others that I can never do that with, which I try not to use them. It's said of eagles that when they're hatchlings Uh, when they're getting ready to have hatchlings, getting ready to lay their eggs in a nest, what they will do is they will gather sticks and branches. And a lot of these sticks and branches have jagged points. Sometimes they will gather branches that have these thorns. Have you seen those, those trees that have these real long thorns on them? So they'll pick jagged, really rough sticks and rocks and bone and stuff like that to make their nest. They will make the foundation of the nest out of that material. It's really rough, it's really rugged. Now they don't lay their eggs in that. What they will do after they put that base in there is they will, do you know what eagles eat? They eat small rodents and rabbits and sometimes little children, they swoop down and get, I'm just kidding, they don't do that. I don't think they do, they could, I'm sorry. If you're watching online, that's not true. Or here, all right. but they will hit, they'll, they'll get rabbits and fox, anything that they see that they can get, because they're carnivorous birds. And once they've had their way with those animals, they will take the skins and the fur of those animals, and they will line the nest with that. They'll find softer material to build up the inner part of that nest so that they can actually lay the eggs and have their hatchlings in a very soft, warm environment. Okay, You following me? Okay. As the hatchlings hatch and they're all skin and they're ugly and they start to grow and they're being fed by mom and dad and and they get bigger, they get fur on their body like this fuzz and then finally they start growing wings and feathers all over their body. When they get to a point where they have these feathers, the mama and the daddy bird will hover oftentimes over because these nests are way, way high. They will hover over and catch the wind and just soar in place over these nests a lot of times to show their eaglets, hatchlings, uh, eaglet is not the word, but I just thought I'd throw that out there. They will show them what you're supposed to do. And so these eagles, little baby eagles will start stretching their wings and trying to figure this out. Then mama and daddy bird, what they'll do to make them uncomfortable is they start to pull out the soft cushion in there, exposing the jagged pieces of sticks and thorns and bones and rocks. Did you know this? I didn't till this week. And why do they do that? Because they're mean and hateful? No. They want to push them beyond the nest. If you make it uncomfortable enough in the nest, the baby eagles will finally learn to fly. We live in a society today that's afraid of making people uncomfortable. so why the church at least the traditional church gets a bad rap today for being haters, is because when we stick strictly to what the Scripture states, it does make you uncomfortable. Why? Because it's so countercultural to any society in any day and age in human history. The kingdom of God is upside down compared to the kingdoms of this world. And when you juxtapose those against each other, it's uncomfortable. There's a tension there. This is why the church for centuries, for millennia, has come under persecution. Not, I'm not going to say, listen, the church, let me just clarify this. The church is not under persecution in the United States. We think it is because we've never experienced pushback. The church under persecution are the ones who lay their lives on the line. They know that if they are going to be a believer in Christ and give their all to him, they're literally putting their life on the line and their family's life on the line. They are basically cutting themselves off from the societies in which they live that are completely opposed to the Bible or Yahweh or Christ. And they know that to make that decision is not just to make a life-altering decision, but possibly lose-your-life kind of decision. And so, <clears throat> we've become very coddled in our culture. Anything goes, we, we, you cannot say anything that is opposite of anything in the culture, or you're a hater. But let me ask you a question. Is it Love, is it truly showing love to speak truth that you know could be hurtful and painful to hear? Or is it showing love to avoid the truth so as not to hurt somebody's feelings? Which one do you think is more love than the other? You're hearing a few mumbles out there. True love is willing to speak the truth in love. Even if it would cost the relationship at times, I say this, and I've used this illustration often. If a deaf person was getting ready to walk across the street, and, or a deaf and blind—let's use the Helen Keller scenario. All right, and I don't. Do you know who Helen Keller? wasn't making up. She's a great lady. What well, was? She's not around anymore, but she was blind and deaf. Miraculous, amazing story uh, about her. If you've never heard of her before, but listen, she's blind and deaf. If she was going to walk across the street unaided, and there was a greyhound bus flying down the street, and it was going to encounter her as she's stepping into oncoming traffic, what would be the right thing to do? Real? Come on, guys. Are you just, this is not rhetorical. I, I'm really concerned about you right now. Uh, she, it's her choice, whatever she wants to do. The right and good and holy and just thing to do would be to say, Well, she couldn't hear it. You'd have to run, right? You'd, <laughs> Helen! Oh, that's right, she can't hear. She can't, okay, I'm going to dart and run as fast as I can to tackle her because I'm willing to risk breaking an arm or a leg for her or her arm and leg than I am for her to die. (laughs) So what is the most loving action? It's to tackle. Actually, it's to make somebody uncomfortable because you love them enough to do so. We don't like to hear that. Everybody gets a trophy in our society today because we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. And I don't mean that derogatory, and I'm not a hard right-winger, Christian nationalist, all that kind of stuff. Don't even start to label me with that. I'm a believer in Christ, first and foremost. I am not a nationalist in any way, form, or fashion, unless it's the kingdom of God. That is the citizenry that I hold high, okay? I'm not against the United States, But I am a Christian first and foremost, and I am a citizen of that kingdom, and I will always be a citizen of that kingdom when the kingdoms of this world pass away. As a believer in Christ, that's what we're called to. But growing requires tension. Growing requires uncomfortableness. How many of you remember being in school or college? Was it comfortable and fun to study for a final or a midterm exam? Did you ever pull all-nighters? Oh yeah, I couldn't do it now. But I pulled several all-nighters and it was painful. It was uncomfortable. I hated it, right? Learning is not easy. Learning requires testing and, and stretching and pulling. When you're not being stretched and pushed into an uncomfortable place to To learn and grow, then you have to ask yourself, am I growing at all? A lot of growth, actually I would dare say most of growth happens within community. When you do life together, as iron sharpens iron, you grow. This is why I say growing in Christ continually requires fellowship within the body of Christ. It's important for us to meet together, to share with one another, to grow together. We teach classes, we have small groups. Why is that? Because we believe so much in this idea of community within the body of Christ that we were not created to do this alone. Go all the way back to Genesis before sin even entered the world, what is the first time God ever said, It is not good? in the perfectness of the created order. It is not good for man to be alone. So what does he do? He puts Adam into a deep sleep, does the first operation known to man, and creates woman. And the two, it says in Genesis 1 and 2, become one flesh as they're joined together. Now, that has different connotations in the marital union. But suffice it to say there's also this communal aspect of oneness that has to occur because it wasn't good for man to be alone. This is across all of humanity, in the perfectness of the garden before sin even entered the world. If we were created to be alone, there would only be one person. It would have been Adam, and he would have been, if he didn't really mess things up, would have been the only one in community with God. But that's not how God works. Because of God's loving nature, he creates. And when he sees something is not good, he creates opportunity so that we can be joined together. So what does that look like? Matthew 28, 16 through 20 is the Great Commission, which is what our vision and our mission is rooted in. Verse 16 says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee. Jesus had told them that they were going to receive the Holy Spirit But before he did that, before they received the Holy Spirit, um, they were to go meet him before he ascended to heaven, okay? He said, I can no longer be with you, but I'll send a helper. And so in Matthew's gospel, he tells us that that Jesus sent them to Galilee. I love this imagery because this is pretty important. Jesus called his disciples from what area? Galilee. So where it all started is now, I won't say where it's ending, but where it's taking, turning a different chapter. And so they go to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. I like to think that mountain is one that they were very familiar with because Jesus went there a lot. And when they saw him, this is When they finally get to Galilee, they see him. They worshiped him, but some doubted. One of the other gospels says that there was a disciple that didn't get to see Jesus bodily yet. Do you remember who that disciple was? Thomas. So Matthew's gospel just has it worded differently, doesn't call out the name, but Thomas hadn't witnessed Christ yet. And maybe some of the others who were not a part of the 12. And and so... He presents himself, and then they worship. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. You know, one of the cool things about this is Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then what's the next statement? Now, therefore, go. What's he doing? Do you catch what he's doing there? He's been given all authority by God the Father in heaven and on earth, and now he says, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Right? It's referring to the authority given to Christ. He he imparts that authority to us, the body of Christ, Do you think that's a big responsibility? Bless you. Do you think that's a big responsibility? No, he just imparted the authority to the disciples who were the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That was just to them. You know, to the clergy. I need to hear a rousing no. Thank you. No, he imparts it. To believers in Christ. Who is a disciple? All of it. If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, you are a follower of his. A disciple translated in, back into the Greek as methetes. Methetes means student. A disciple isn't this highly divine connotation. It is mainly a student or a pupil of Christ Jesus. We are not making disciples of Brandon or Jim or Christy or anybody else in here. We have been called to go make disciples of Christ. And the only way we could do that is to invite them into this relationship with Christ, into the community of faith. They cannot do that apart from that. So, where do we go from here? What's the key point? You're like, really? You're just now getting to the key point? (laughs) I told you 120 minutes, so just kidding. Growing in Christ continually is the way a disciple matures in his or her faith. How does that look like? What does that look like? Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47. Let's turn there quickly. The New Living Translation reads this way. All believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. This is immediately, I would say, um, about 40 days, 50 days after the... Uh, ascension of Christ and the coming of the Holy Spirit has just happened. And now Luke, in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 42, is giving us this overview of what the early church looks like after the Holy Spirit has come, after Christ is risen, ascended to heaven, the Holy Spirit's come, imparted himself, and dwells within community and in the individual. He has now empowered the church... And what are they doing? All believers. How many? All believers. What did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They did not have the New Testament yet. Did you know that? We're talking about mid-30s A.D. Most of the New Testament didn't get written until the 50s or 60s A.D., 20 or 30 years after Christ had died and rose from the grave. So what do they do for those 20 or 30 years? They study the apostles' teaching. How was that handed down? By eyewitnesses or the apostles themselves. When they studied together, they had the eyewitnesses there. Actually, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says there were 500 witnesses to the risen Christ. And so they studied what the apostles had experienced in the three years they were together. That was the first New Testament, Gospels. And they devoted themselves to fellowship. What's that? Hanging out, getting together. And they didn't get together in vain. They did life together. They loved one another. They challenged one another. As iron sharpens iron, they pushed one another into goodness. They exhorted one another. They rebuked when necessary. They shared meals together, including the Lord's Supper. They ate a lot. You just one of the things I hear about the church all the time is it sounds like you guys always eat. Yeah, it's a part of our tradition. I hear it from Baptists, Presbyterians are always having potlucks here and there. We have a luncheon once a month, usually during the regular season. We get together, we eat. It's a part of community because eating breaks down barriers. We, it's hard to hate somebody that you're sitting across the table with sharing in a meal together. I'm not saying you can't. It's just harder. Amen. Yeah, if it's bad food, it's really bad. Like, uh, oh, I hate the company and I hate the food. But usually... Eating together breaks down barriers. They shared in the Lord's Supper together. So not only did they share meals, what else did they do? They shared in the Lord's Supper. What's the Lord's Supper? You just go back to the Last Supper, and we see what that is. The Last Supper was the breaking of the unleavened bread and the drinking of the cup, which is wine. No, we don't do wine, we do grape juice. Nevertheless, the reality was they wanted to make sure that any time they gathered together, but they broke bread, they studied the apostles' teaching, that they were also doing this in remembrance of Christ. And this is the symbolic way that Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is what they were doing. And it says they devoted themselves to prayer. Oh, that'll take a whole sermon series to get through that one. So needless to say, prayer was such an integral part of the body of Christ that they would not meet together without doing it because they knew that they were in communion with the father they weren't just in communion with each other when they met together they honored the father and they were in communion with him through prayer and Jesus had taught them how to pray Matthew chapter 6 our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And he wasn't just telling them to recite a rote prayer, but helping them to understand the fundamentals of a prayer life who they are praying to, what they truly can ask for, and what they should expect from their Heavenly Father and from themselves. It says in verse 43, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. There are those in the church today who believe that the miraculous signs and wonders ended with the first century church because it just needed to happen then to get the church off the ground and get it growing. There is nowhere in Scripture you will hear or read that those signs and wonders ended. We are not a church that advances that ideology or that theology, which I think is a false theology. We believe in the miraculous signs and wonders. They're still alive and well. The problem is we don't believe it. Even in our churches that are part of the holiness tradition that don't believe those miraculous signs and wonders have ended, we just don't believe that we have the ability to do that. And so because we don't believe, we don't see. We don't experience We don't do. Jesus says, the things you've seen me do, what did he say we would do? A couple of you believe that. He said, the things you've seen me do, you will do even greater things than these. What did Jesus do? He raised the dead. No, that was back in the first century. Uh, You know, people in foreign countries who were living this out today, who truly do believe that the living God is alive and well and works through the body of Christ and manifests himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, through healing and other matters and manifestations, are seeing signs, wonders, and miracles because they have a heart of belief, because there's, they've given up everything else. And in those small communities, they have dedicated Everything, they put all on the line. We don't have to do that. We have taken for granted for so long in the church the freedoms that we have been given that we have so stagnated as the body of Christ in our culture. There are pockets that aren't stagnant, but as a whole, across the American church, we are so stagnant that we have become this putrid smell in the nostrils of God, like... Revelation chapter three in the church at Laodicea. You are like this lukewarm water. I just want to vomit out of my mouth. And listen, I know there's a fanaticism that also goes to an extreme as showmanship, but there is a legitimate, real Holy Spirit who works and moves as powerfully today, if not more so as he did in the first century church. And I think it's all because of a lack of belief. You remember Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth. What does it say he cannot do? He can't do miracles there. What, I thought God could do anything. No, it says he can't do miracles there because of their what? Lack of belief. Do you you think that maybe God can't do miracles in his churches today because of a lack of belief? We have some people that believe only to a point. I I believe, sure, I believe in Jesus. He was a real guy. He lived. I believe he rose from the dead. Yeah, I'm surrendering my life to him, but I'm going to only believe this far. But see, Jesus wants us to step into the fullness of who he is. He wants us to surrender everything to him. Our relationships, our life, our addictions. Our children, our spouses. Those broken relationships, they all have to be surrendered. He wants us to surrender the pain, the hurt, the disease you're dealing with, the sickness that's chronic in your life. But because we don't believe I dare say he can do no miracles in our life. That's a hard truth to swallow. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. Now, listen, the church had spread by this point. They all met together in one place. He's talking about pockets of believers in certain regions and places and towns. They would meet together in one place. What are we doing this morning? We're meeting together in one place. For 2,000 years, the church has met together in one place, generation after generation after generation, not because of tradition, but because it's what God desires for us. Because where two or more gather in his name, where is he? In his name, he is there among them. There's something about community. I remember the debates, and it's still going on now that when COVID hit and we shut down everything, I think it was one of the tools of the enemy to separate the body of Christ. And, and now hear me out here. I'm not saying that COVID was a farce. It truly it took millions of lives. But there's this weird dichotomy that happened within the body of Christ, where theologies began to get changed within that mix. Well, I don't have to meet at a place in order to be a Christian. No, you don't. You don't have to come to this specific location to be the church. But forsaking the assembling of ourselves together is not something we are called to do. We are called to meet together, to share with one another, to break bread together, to do life together, to challenge one another, to live this life of faith together as we were created to do from the very beginning of time. It doesn't mean we should not take precautions or throw caution to the wind, but it says that we should meet together. You know what's one of the interesting things that I've seen? I love history. And when you read about the plagues of the past within Christendom, not before Christ, in times of Martin Luther and several others where where you have the Black Plague and the, the Bubonic Plague and all these plagues that are happening where everybody else is retreating, what is the church doing? I, and this is so amazing to me. What happens in those contexts when the rest of the world retreats, the church goes to the front lines. And we've retreated so much in our in our culture that the church has become so irrelevant. We aren't even on the front lines enough to be persecuted. We've become such a force to not be reckoned with that we're in a bubble or cocoon. Growing in Christ continually requires our stepping out of the bubbles and going and broadening the community of faith by helping to make disciples of all nations. They worship together. At the temple, each day, they met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. They, they went to the... So the temple was still around for the next, from, you know, till 70 A.D. How, how often do they go to the temple? It was a place of worship and prayer. We can barely go, and if the pastor goes too long, I got a pot roast, or I got to beat the lunch crowd. We can barely do an hour to an hour and a half on a Sunday morning, they went daily to the temple to worship and to pray. They worshipped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and adjoining the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Do you catch what happened there? They were doing all of that stuff. They were living it out. They were seeing signed wonders and miracles, and they stood in awe of what God was doing in their midst. And everybody on the outside was saying, "Whoa! Did you see what's happening in North Maine? Do you know? You know Jimmy? He had he had uh, he was paralyzed from the neck down. He could walk." Do you know um, Billy, he, ha- he was so addicted to heroin and-, and, he- and he overdosed several times. He's clean. It even causes him like a gag reflex to even think about going back to that stuff. You know uh, uh, Sarah, who was-, who was in the prison. She came to Christ and, and-, and her life is completely different. See, that's the attractive quality of the early church. It's the attractive quality of the early church that caused them to grow. They were attractive, not in a repulsive way, but in a way that drew people in to say, what is going on? I want what you have. I mean, I'm seeing what's happening. Even the Roman historians like Tacitus and Pliny, They document what the Christians were doing. That they meet together early in the morning before sun comes up on the first day of the week. And they sing hymns together in the darkness of those moments by candlelight before they start their day. And they eat this bread and drink this cup as if it's the body and the blood of God. It's weird, but they do this. Why, why are they doing this? It's because of their dedication to the living Savior, Jesus. We grow in Christ continually by doing life together. And that requires fellowship together. It requires worship together. It requires praying Together, And I'm not just talking about a prayer on Sunday morning for a couple minutes when somebody's on the stage doing it. We are to be unceasing in our prayer, Paul says. Well, Brandon, I can't walk around with my eyes closed or kneeling down. You don't have to. When you, I, I, I talk about this. Prayer is communion with God. I can commune with my wife. We can be in the same room without even talking But we are together. We are cognizant and and, and aware of each other's presence. Prayer is as much that kind of connection. Now, it is talking, but as much as it's talking, it's twice the listening. Well, Brandon, what am I listening for? You're listening for the distractions of the world to be pushed out in that still small voice of God, which came to Elijah on this mountain and told him, get back. Down to earth, you're not the only one left. It requires learning together. Richard Foster, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, it's a classic book by this point, but he writes in, this, in his Discipline of Study chapter, he says, Many Christians remain in bondage to fears and anxieties simply because they do not avail themselves to the discipline of study. Study of what? the word of god is what he's getting at they may be uh, they may be faithful in church attendance earnest in fulfilling their religious duties and they still are not changed he goes on to he goes on to write i'm not here speaking of only of those who are going through mere religious forms like just going through the motions but of those who are genuinely seeking to worship and obey Jesus Christ as Lord and Master. He's talking about, see, these people who are, I really am all in. I love Jesus. And, but don't ask me to read the Bible. It's so confusing. You were not just created to study the living word, which is Christ, but the written word. And in their day and age, it was the Old Testament. They were encouraged to the discipline of studying the word, which was the Old Testament, and the living word, which came through the apostles' teachings. Now we have the written word of the apostles in a thing we call the New Testament. And we are to dedicate ourselves to the study of that. But you cannot understand that apart from being in community. So yes, read it in your quiet time. Study it. But then come together, discuss it, and and sharpen one another. We do that in our classes, or small groups, together. He goes on to write, they may sing with gusto, pray in the spirit, live as obediently as they know how to, even re- receive divine visions and revelations from God, and yet, they, and yet the tenor of their lives remains unchanged. Why? he asks this rhetorical question. We'll listen to what he says. Because they have never taken up one of the central ways God uses to change us, and that is study of the word. Jesus made it unmistakably clear that the knowledge of truth will set you free. You will know the truth, John eight thirty two. You will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth is not only a who, but also a what. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the living word, but he is the embodiment of the written word that had been spoken throughout the ages. We aren't free because we don't know the truth, and we don't go to the source of truth to even understand it. Why are our churches fomenting false teaching without even recognizing it? Because we don't know it. I could sit up here and tell you a bunch of junk and unless you're willing to test it out, you're not even gonna know the truth either. That's why I tell you, look it up, read it, chew on it, let's talk about it, right? You will know the truth, the truth will make you free. Good feelings don't make you free. Ecstatic experiences will not make you free. Getting high on Jesus will not make you free. Without the knowledge of the truth, you cannot be free. Our worship team comes forward today to close this out. I'm going to leave you with a book, a quote from a book by, how many of you are familiar with a guy by the name of Philip Yancey? Okay, that was years ago. I, he used to have a big afro. He was a cool dude, he was a jazzy fella. But he wrote some pretty amazing books back in the day. One of those uh, is a classic called Disappointment with God. And I'm telling you, it's timeless. If you've not read this book, get it and read it. It it really unpacks a lot of tough issues. Um, It made a resurgence around 2001 with the attacks on the World Trade Center and all that, but Disappointment with God by Philip Yancey. He describes the means to growth and maturity of faith. Listen to what he says. Human beings grow by striving, working, and stretching. And in a sense, human nature needs problems more than solutions. Now, listen to what he says. Why are not all prayers answered magically and instantly? Why must every convert travel The same tedious path of spiritual discipline. Because persistent prayer and fasting and study and meditation are designed primarily for our sakes, not for God's. The great philosopher Kierkegaard said that Christians reminded him of schoolboys who want to look up the answers to their math problems in the back of the school book rather than to work them through. In my day and age, I remember that. The answers were in the back of the math book, and they were only there to check your answer. But guess what? I was the typical student. I didn't want to put in the hard work. I just wanted the answer. Don't make me work for it. But there is no growth when all you get are just answers. We yearn for shortcuts, he writes, but shortcuts usually lead the way from growth and not toward it. Apply the the principle directly to Job. What was the final result of the testing he went through? As Rabbi Abraham Heschel observed, faith like Job's cannot be shaken because it's a result of having been shaken. Doing life together in the body of Christ means weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice laughing and celebrating together through our joys caring for one another when others can't care for themselves doing life together in the church means sharpening one another as i've said over and over again in this message is iron sharpens iron and forgiving one another's offenses because we've been forgiven by god himself through christ jesus and ultimately This is the means by which disciples in Christ grow continually. You cannot do it apart from Christ and nor can you grow apart from the body of Christ. You cannot grow without joining in one another, in one another's lives and pushing into each other, not in a judgmental way, but in a way that shows that you care, that you love and you want to help others to greatness to help others be corrected in what they're doing, or you yourself to be open to that correction. I don't know where you are today. I don't assume to know every struggle that you've ever faced, but I do know those that grow in Christ are the ones who have committed to pushing through, to seeking the truth, and only finding the freedom in the knowledge of that truth who is Christ Jesus. And that happens together within this body or at least it should, when you open yourself to community. Let's pray. Father, we know that you created us, <laughs> different races, nationalities, ethnicities, male and female. God, you've, you created us so wide and diverse, but you created us to seek you with our whole heart. You created us not for ourselves, but rather for you. And that may sound selfish, I know, to many of us, but God, there's no freedom apart from you to truly be free and to know who we are and what our identity is, is to be completely surrendered to you. Otherwise, we're just chasing the wind in our own whims and desires, which don't always lead to you as we're reminded that we are sinful creatures prone to wonder, our only true north star is Christ and who we desire to know intimately. But we cannot know him intimately without a complete surrender of our lives to him. Confession of sin and repentance of our past. And Father, we truly can't grow in the knowledge of who Christ is apart from being a part of the community of faith that's truly studying the word to show themselves approved and living it out on a daily basis. Lord, help us to be a light and a salt to this community, not because we've compromised the message of truth, not because we've shied away from it, but God, because we stand on the firm foundation of what truth truly is, which is Christ Jesus. Unashamedly and unapologetically, but help us to never wield the truth to cut people off at the knees, but to speak the truth in love so that lives can truly be changed. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Christ who went to the least, the lowly, the hurt, the broken, the downcast to show them what love truly is so that by that love and by that kindness, they may know repentance. In Jesus' name.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's Word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.